Good morning, Mission View. I hope you feel filled up just by the, the presence of worship. Um, I don't say it enough, but I want to say it today that I am so grateful that God has given us a leadership team and uh, in the worship team and the excellence of what they do. I'm thankful for the elders in our ministry and for all that they do. You, some of you saw it last week, Randy Smith, he did a great job at preaching the Word of God, uh, finishing up First Peter. I'm thankful for that. Don't worry, you're going to hear from some of the other elders this year. Uh, believe it or not, I will only be preaching about the same amount of time that I did this past year. Uh, we have a lot of different people in the body uh, that will be using their gifts and abilities. You'll hear again from Randy. You'll hear from, uh, from uh, Josh Chandler. He's going to be preaching the word. You'll hear from Evan Miller, one of our deacons, uh, in several messages. And, I'm a, and you'll hear from some of our missionaries this coming year. So I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the deacons that God has placed at Mission View because Mission View has just an incredible leadership team. And they're the ones that are here early. They're setting up. They're getting things going. And I'm so appreciative of what God has given us in this body. We have much, much to be thankful for. God has blessed this ministry richly. And I'm looking forward to what he's going to do in this coming year as we continue on as a team. And I'm thankful that God has brought each one of you to this ministry. I believe that he brings people to a church, not just to worship. Yes, that's a vital part, but also to help it advance in God's kingdom. This, this ministry is not perfect. We have a lot of areas to grow in. We are flawed individuals, and that's why we need the giftedness that God brings. When he brings individuals, he brings people that have gifts and abilities to help advance and to bring this church to where he wants it to be. So I'm thankful for each of you as well. Today, I'd like for us to think a little bit about the topic of heroes. Now, in our society... We have all kinds of heroes that come and go, and we tend to put a lot of stock in those heroes only to feel disappointed. Don't, have you ever sensed that? How about the Cleveland Browns? We, the Cleveland Browns need some help. And all of us at one point thought, you know what, maybe Johnny Money Menzel, he could bring Mr. Football, Johnny Football, Heisman Trophy winner. This guy can bring a spark and a step to Cleveland. He's going to be a hero. He's going to be a football savior to Cleveland. And all of us have probably faced a disappointment. He has underperformed, and certainly his character has certainly not been there. But we also have other heroes. Remember our hometown hero, LeBron James. He's the hometown, he's the guy that brought, uh, we're thinking a title, finally, get the curse of Cleveland off our back. But then do you remember how quickly he went from hero to zero status when he betrayed us? He fell from grace. He went down to Miami. Can you believe he would do such a thing? But then the prodigal son came home, and we were so happy, and there was rejoicing. Here's the point. Heroes come, and heroes go, goes, and they, they go away, and it's all elusive. 
Now, I want to talk to you about a different kind of hero. I would call them an unlikely hero. Now, an unlikely hero isn't somebody that you necessarily emotionally attach to and say, man, you are such a hero in my eyes. Sometimes the unlikely hero is the person that after reflection, after the fact, you start thinking about different people in your life that had an impact and you think, you know what? So-and-so, that person really played a vital role in my life. And so because it's after the fact, there's usually no ticker tape parade for this type of person. There's nobody offering a roast for them, nobody offering up a glass of wine and saying, giving a cheer or a toast to this individual. It is an unlikely hero, somebody that nobody is going to praise at the time. Do you have those people in your life? Maybe you're that person to somebody else. I can remember in my life different people that qualify now in my thinking as the unlikely hero. When I, soon after I got saved, I got saved around the age of 14, I went to a little church in Firestone Park. It was a little mom and pop church. And in this mom and pop church, there was a sea of gray. I want you to know I loved it. I had so many grandparents in that church, and they had the best potluck dinners ever. It was an awesome church to be a part of. Now, there were only about five or six youth that ranged from sixth grade to senior in high school, and I was one of the six. Now, we didn't have a youth pastor, but we did have a lady I am calling Miss So-and-So because I cannot remember her name for the life of me. I want you to know that this lady was a dear lady. She was about 120 years of age. Um, she, at least she seemed that way to me at that time. But you know what? She was there every single week in our Sunday school department. And we went into this little concrete block cell, uh, which we didn't care, but it was in the basement. And we went there and every single week she took her tattered Bible and opened it up. And then she got her notes that were always single space in cursive writing and they were about six pages in length and she just went on and on and on somewhat somewhat like your pastor today but she was incredible now she wasn't incredible she wasn't like a dynamic teacher that i latched onto but she brought me a meal every single week and i could trust that and you know what i love about this lady she was faithful she was faithful. She loved Jesus. She loved us. And she loved God's word. And every single week, she brought us the word of God. And I grew to really trust her advice. I can remember I was a senior in high school. And I had determined that I wanted to go to Bible school. I wanted to go to Moody Bible Institute. But at that time, Moody Bible Institute was a three-year school, and you had, to do, you had to do a part of your education at a secular university, for like at Akron U. I knew I'd have to go to Akron U. So the dilemma was, do I stay here and go to Akron U for a year or two and then go to Moody or go to Moody first? Now, you need to know that there was a little incentive for me to stay. There was this hot brunette that I was dating by the name of Leanne. And I wanted to be home where she was. And so there was that incentive. So I went to Miss So-and-so and I said, okay, I need your advice. What do you think I should do? 
Now, don't you love it when people, when you ask a sincere question and they answer it with a question? That's what she did. She just kind of rubbed her chin. I can remember her saying this. She says, well, Stephen, I think you need to ask yourself, if you only had two years left in your life, would you rather spend it studying God's word or doing something else? I had my answer. I knew, I knew I needed to go to Bible school. I knew I needed to do that. And so here's this Sunday school teacher who is the unlikely hero in my life as I reflect in people that have had an impact. Who's been that unlikely hero in your life? Who is it that, that is that unsung hero? We're going to be covering in the next several weeks, actually all, all of January, February, March, leading up to Easter, we're going to be taking a look at Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to be looking at, I, I, call, them un, uh, I call them the, uh, the unlikely heroes of the Bible. I, they're unlikely heroes because if you really study their life, you realize these are tremendously flawed individuals. But in some ways, I'm very thankful for that because I can relate to that. Any tremendously flawed individuals in here, thank you. We are all that way. And so we can have a relatability to these individuals. And our goal is to look at them and the example that they offer. Now, here's where we've come from. We went from 1 Peter where we talked about being an outcast and exercising our faith in a difficult world. But now we're going to be looking at these examples for us to study. We're going to look at them. We're going to say, what is it that I can emulate in my life so that I can do that in my daily life? And then after this, after Easter, we're going to be going into James where we hit some of the practical, this is how faith should be lived out. Faith without actions is, is not faith at all. And so we're going to be looking at that. So that's the context of our winter and where we're going to be going. But before we get into our passage and turn to Hebrews 11, I want to ask this one question. Are you building your life in such a way that people can see your faith? That people someday would come and say, you are that unlikely hero in my life. Let's pray that that be true. Lord, as we get into your word, as we go into this series, I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand that we are to make disciples. And in making disciples, we are setting a pattern of faith for those that come behind us. And so, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would help us to be that example of faith. And, Lord, we admit that there's times that we don't even understand what faith is all about. And we need your wisdom, we need your guidance, we need your word. And so I pray that you would use your word right now to encourage our hearts. Help us to be men and women of faith. Help us to set that example in our life. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11, and we're only going to be covering the first few verses, 1 to 4. But let's take a look at what I would see as the foundation to all the examples. Before we get to the example starting in verse 4, the first three verses is setting a foundation, a kind of a description and a definition of what faith is all about. And what we're going to see here, in here's big picture, is that faith is believing the God who speaks. Now, I want you to think about that. Faith is believing in the God who speaks. Take a look at verses 1 and 2. 
starting in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. If you write in your Bible, underscore the word assurance. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction, underscore conviction, of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Underscore that. Verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Underscore word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, the writer of Hebrews starts off with more of a description of what faith is about and then moves into kind of a definition of what it's all about. So the description is in verses 1 and 2, and he uses three words. He uses the word assurance. He uses the word conviction. He uses the word commending. Look at what they mean. The word assurance means to stand under to support. In other words, faith is the foundation of my life that supports me. It is the faith that, that supports me. I can't see it. It's something that I hope and put my trust in, but it is something that I support my life on. Just as you are sitting in that chair and you put faith in that chair, knowing that it would hold you, you have that belief and that, that, that conviction that God, or the assurance that God is going to uphold you. Then the second word is conviction. It means to have an inward trust that what God says he will do, he will do. He will perform it. This means that though I can't see him, I trust him. And when I hear him speak, I'm willing to step out in faith. Do you realize that every day we have a choice to live in faith or not? Sometimes in faith, we tend to step out and we think, okay, can I, can I trust it? Can I tr and then we realize, oh yeah, I can trust God. And then we step out again can I trust it? Yes, I can trust God. And we realize there's really no boundaries to our faith that we can trust God at all times. And so we have the assurance that God's there, the conviction that he will speak, and the commendation means that there will be a testimony. There will be a commendation given to us when we are faithful by God. Now put it all together, a person who has faith in God will live with God being the foundation of their life, with this inward trust that he will complete his promises and that someday in his evaluation, he will commend us for living by faith. Now that's the description of faith. But then we go into verse 3 and we see more of a definition of faith. Take a look at verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. First observation, the first hero, unlikely hero, is those that would put their faith in God. Notice the word we. That's you and I as believers. And so basically, you can fill your name into the blank. You can say, by faith, Steve Marshall understands that God created the world by simply speaking the word. You can put your name in there, and that is what faith is all about. So we are the, we are the, unlike, the first unlikely hero that's brought up, but he's also given us the definition. Did you get it? It's believing that God spoke it, and it's true. 
that God spoke it in creation, and it's true. It's interesting that the Hebrews writer goes immediately to the creation account. Now think about the creation account. What happened at the creation account? When Genesis was written, God used Moses to pen the words, but it was God inspiring it. Notice what it says. And God said, and God said, and God said. All along in Genesis chapter 1. It says, and God said, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. God said, let there be an expanse between the waters. And guess what? It happened. And God said, let the waters be gathered and let the land produce vegetation. And it happened. And God said, let there be light in the sky. And it happened. And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures. And it happened. And God said, let the land produce living creatures and let us make man in our image. And it happened. See, for the person that might doubt the creation account, the evidence is in creation itself. All you have to do is look at the creation and you see, man, there is an intelligent designer behind it. How can you look at the human body and look at the intricacies of the human body to see how a child is formed within the womb, to see even how the, the body is put together? It demands an intelligent designer. It demands that. All we need to do is look at the spell-binding nature of creation itself. The symbiotic relationship is that that is in our ecosystem. All we have to do is look at the beauty and the wonder of this planet, and we see that there is an incredible, intelligent designer. It all stemmed from God saying, it will happen, and it did. God did it. God spoke it. Now, what's interesting, just as a case in point, when Moses penned these words, guess what? He was doing it to tell the story to his people just before they were going into the promised land. Just before they're going to the promised land, Moses, come here. We're going to write down a few things. I want these people to understand everything of what's happened. I want them to understand their story because there's going to be all kinds of stories in, in the land of Canaan. There's going to be all kinds of stories of the people that are the wicked people that live there. And I want our people to understand their identity. And so he gives two chapters, two chapters dedicated to how the world came into being. Then he gives five books in how the nation came into being. But when he told this story, he wanted them to understand that God spoke on the edge of darkness and boom, it happened. That's how powerful their God is. See, the Canaanites, they held to a different belief system in terms of, of creation. The Canaanites believed in their God, Murdoch. And Murdoch, it's in their fables and in their legend that him being the supreme God had a fight with Tiamat, a great sea monster. And as a result of beating up on Tiamat and being victorious, he created the earth and the universe out of the dead carcass of Tiamat. Now tell that to your children as a nighttime bed story and it will traumatize them. And so basically Moses wanted them to have the story of God, that God did not create this world out of struggle and strife, but rather he was the very one that stood on the edge of nothingness and was so powerful that he could speak it into existence, and it happened. 
That's how powerful our God is. God spoke. Do you realize that that's what faith is about? It's believing that God spoke it, and I'm going to live it out. I am going to believe it. I am going to trust in what he says. It's interesting that this is basically the theme throughout the Bible. God spoke it, and I'm to believe it. Everything that we're going to look in Hebrews 11, it's about this. This is the pattern you're going to feel, you're going to see. God speaks to different individuals. After God speaks to those individuals, God starts a stirring within their heart. And as a result, they decide to take a step of faith and in obedience. And as a result, God commends them for their faith for taking that step. Do you realize that we can listen to God all day long, but if we don't take that step of faith, we're not going to be commended by God. And I'm speaking to some that God, just as he spoke to people throughout the Old Testament, he wants to speak to you. And he's getting you to believe in him in every aspect. There's a stirring that he has been doing in your heart, but it does no good if you just stand still. He may be wanting you to step out in faith in starting a ministry. Step out in faith in sharing Christ with your neighbor. Step out in faith in discipling another person or being discipled or being mentored what is it that god is stirring in your heart do you realize not only in the old testament does god speak and stir in hearts but he does it in the new testament and he calls it faith here's one example for you read it this week we don't have time to look at it but matthew chapter 8 matthew chapter 8 an amazing thing happens jesus is teaching and all of a sudden, there is a centurion that comes up, and he says, Jesus, if you would, would you please come to my hand? Would you please heal my servant? Would you please heal my servant? And Jesus gets up and is about to go to his house. He says, no, 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 you don't have to come to my house. Actually, I'm unworthy to have you come to my house. All you have to do is say the word. You say the word, and I'll believe that, that you'll heal my servant. And then Jesus says, uh, there is no greater faith in all of Israel that I have seen than in this person that said, just say the word. I'm a man under authority. I tell this person to go, that person to go. I know you will do it. Jesus says there's no greater faith. Why does Jesus commend this Roman pagan centurion for his great faith? Then a few verses later, it's almost comical, he has his disciples. And one disciple comes up to him and says, Hey, Jesus, I'd like to follow you, but i got to bury my father. Now, the evidence is that his father hadn't even died. He's saying, Down the road, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you. And Jesus says, No, let the dead bury their own. In other words, you have to trust me with every aspect of your life, even your family. And then we see, all of a sudden, the disciples are out in a boat. The next scene is the disciples are in the boat, and there's Jesus is sleeping. He's getting a little cat nap. It's been a hard day. And all of a sudden, a storm comes upon them, and the boat is rocking back and forth, and the disciples are thinking they're going to die. They're a bunch of fishermen. He's a carpenter. They run to the carpenter. They should be accustomed to this. And they say, Jesus, we're going to die. We're going to die. Help us. Help us. And Jesus says, when he awakens, you of little faith. Why 
you so afraid? Let me ask you a question. What's the point? What's Jesus doing by this contrast? Why is it that he commends the Roman centurion for great faith and his own disciples for a little faith? Here's the reason. One believed Jesus at his word, and the others did not. That's what faith is. God says it. I will believe it, and I will stake my life on it. Friends, God has spoken his word to us. This is the reason why you and I just don't allow this to become an item on our night, a nightstand, or in our living room. This word, from cover to cover, is filled with so many promises. It's filled with so many things to instruct us. And if there is any resolution, if there is anything that I would encourage you to do this year, is determine that you are going to read God's word. Because in order for you to stand on the promises of what he has spoken, you need to know what he has spoken. And realize he gives instructions on prayer. Realize he gives instruction on forgiveness. Realize he gives instruction on so many aspects of our life. And what he wants us to do is take a stand in faith that he is a God that is so big and is so powerful. How big is your God? Is he as big as the one who could stand on the edge of darkness and create something out of Is he bigger than any deity that has ever been claimed in this world? If he is, then he can walk through the valleys of everything that you are facing in your life. This is the faith that he wants you and I to have. How big is our God? Well, let's finish up the message by looking at the first example. Now we know what the description is. Now we know what the definition, that faith is believing the truth and the the words of God. Now let's look at the example. Verse 4 of Hebrews 11 says this. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gift And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, there's a lot packed into this. We don't have time to look at the parallel passage. But again, if you read Matthew 8 this week, that would be great. But also read Genesis chapter 4. And you will see the parallel passage to this. Let me describe it to you. There's basically four scenes that unfold in that chapter and that are described in this one verse. The first scene, the curtains open. It is the scene of the two sacrifices. Now remember all the participants in this drama. There's Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, they've made some mistakes already. And now they had two children, Cain and Abel. And this is what we know from chapter 4, that Cain is a farmer and Abel is a, a shepherd. Both brought an offering to God. Now, the first question that comes up is, why in the world did they bring an offering to God? Well, I believe it's because God spoke it to be. God communicated to them. We're going to see that in the passage. And God gave the instruction that they were to bring a sacrifice to God. Why would both of them do that? 
because God commanded that. There's the word of God, the command of God in their life. Bring a sacrifice. And so what we see in the passage, though, is that God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. So the question comes up, the second question, why did he accept one over the other? We know as the scriptures develop that God accepted both grain offerings and animal sacrifices. So why was one better than the other? I think the issue is what it always is. It was an issue of the heart. God is always looking to the heart. Look throughout the scripture. He, did, he chose a king, not on the basis of physical appearance, but he says man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at what? The heart. He looks at our heart all the time. And so did Cain come and give God his best? Did he give sacrificially? Did he do it as an act of worship? Did Cain do it as an act of faith? Evidently not because God did not accept his sacrifice. Now just as an application, I think this speaks to the issue of how we give as individuals. This speaks to what we are to do. Are we given as Cain did where we did not give our full heart? Or are we giving sacrificially that everything we have is God's as Abel did? See, I think this is an issue that you and I as Christ followers, we need to get right. Because it's something that God still demands and asks of us today. He asks of us to be givers that's what he wants. He is a generous God. He is a generous God that has lavished on us everything that we need. And all he asks is that we would demonstrate a sacrifice in giving back to God. Here's a couple observations that I see from this passage. Number one, giving was an act of worship with Abel. Giving was an act of worship with Abel, and therefore it was reflected in what he did. See, the grain offerings and the meat offerings at that time, they didn't have finances at that time. It was the byproduct of their labor. For you and I, the byproduct of our labor is our paycheck. And we know from the scriptures that God still demands that we give to him, that we give sacrificially, that we give uh, obediently to him an offer of sacrifice to, to God. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you realize that our finances and our giving to God is one of the greatest tests of faith on what we do? And if we don't give, then we don't have faith. If we don't give, we're not trusting God in a major area of our life. This isn't me who speaks. This is all the way from Cain and Abel. This is what Jesus said in the New Testament. This is what God demands of us. And so here's a question we need to evaluate. If we're not giving to God, then we need to know what the root cause of that is. Now, I don't know what people give here at Mission View. I don't. I don't take look at anybody. I just know historically in the church that there's many people that for whatever reason, they don't give. You need to evaluate. If that's you, you need to ask yourself, why? What's the root cause of it? Because the root cause might be I'm overextending myself and how I live. 
I'm seeing things as my possessions. I don't know what the root cause is, but you just got to know that God still demands of us a sacrifice. Now, here's the second observation. Giving had everything to do with the attitude of the heart. Giving had everything to do with the attitude of the heart. Notice where the bar is set here. Not giving anything is beyond not acceptable. Both Cain and Abel bring a sacrifice to God. But the issue is, how was that sacrifice given to God? Cain obviously had wrong motives. He had wrong motives in giving. Maybe he was begrudging in his giving. Maybe he thought it was all his, and why did he have to give of the best of his flock? Why would he have to do that? No matter what, what we know is that God read his heart. And so what this brings us to ask is, how am I giving? If you are a giver, are you giving joyfully? Are you giving, saying, this is a sacrifice to God because it is an act of worship on my part? This is act one. Act two, Cain is down in the face. He is complaining, and God comes to Cain and he says, why are you so angry? Just because I did not accept your sacrifice, why are you angry? Why are you so downcast in your face? Why is it that you are like that? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? See, God was basically saying to Cain, the solution is simple. Get your heart right with me. Draw close to me. Surrender to me. Love me. This is your choice. Do you realize that our walk with God is always a choice? And then God says a grace-filled warning to, to Cain. He says, but if you do not do what is right, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, but you must master it. See, this is a grace-filled warning because God sees the road Cain's going down. It's the same road his parents went down. Sin was crouching at the door of Adam and Eve and the serpent saying, go ahead and take it. And throughout history, there's always been that temptation that says, go ahead, live for yourself, do whatever you want. Don't do what God says. Do what makes you happy. And that's what you are to do. And sin is always crouching at the door. And God's grace-filled warning is, Cain, I know where you're going. I know where you're headed. And it's not going to be good. Sin is going to cost you more than you want to pay. And it is going to damage you and others. Friends, God's been given that same warning throughout the ages. Sin's crouching at our door every single day. It desires to have us. But faith says, no, I am not going to listen to the enemy. I'm going to listen to the truth of God, even though it's difficult. That's why I will flee from pornography. I will flee from temptation. I will draw near to God with all of my heart. I will surround myself with men or women in my life for accountability. I will listen to God. That's what I'm going to do. There's two paths. Cain was going down the wrong path. And then we see scene three. He murders his brother. He murders his brother. See, this is what causes skeptics to doubt God. 
It's things like this. Because they look at this and they say, well, how? How could that happen? How could something terrible happen to the person that should have been the hero of this passage? This person should have been the, 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 the one that was rewarded. He gave a sacrifice, an offering of sacrifice. And as a result of him doing that, his life was sacrificed. See, this is the reality that we live in a sin-torn world. And somehow we blame God for this. When God is the very one that says, no, don't go down this path. I'm warning you, it'll hurt you, it'll hurt other people. And God has been saying that for centuries and decades and, and in our life. And he says, no, don't go that way because it hurts. Sin will always destroy. It will destroy relationships. It will destroy trust. It will destroy lives. And we see people getting hurt as a result of it. Does God protect? Yeah, he protects. But it doesn't always look the way that we think it should look. And the fourth scene is the, the scene of legacy. If you read the rest of the chapter, you'll see that Cain lives. He lives all right. He lives and his family actually succeeds as civilization builders. He has families that are ranchers, that are skilled musicians, that are iron workers. They're, they're good in society. But we also see a legacy of evil and corruption in the life of Cain. And if you study his life, you'll see that that's filled with all kinds of evil and corruption. But then there's the legacy of Abel. Hebrews 11.4 says this, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. He still speaks. This tells us that when we live by faith, God is in charge of our legacy. And that there will be, even when we are dead and gone, our legacy will continue on because there will be people that remember what you did in their life. And so that's why I asked at the very beginning of this, uh, this, this message, what is it that we're doing in our life that is passing on this legacy of faith, that people are looking at our life? And I will admit that there are times that it's really difficult to live by faith. So here's my question. Is your faith in God strong? Some would say no. Honestly, if you looked at my life, my faith in God is not strong at all. I look at my, I have been wrestling all week long with this message because I'm looking at my own life first and I'm like, you know what? I'm not trusting God enough just in how I'm praying. I think that there are areas that God has to increase my faith and grow. There's times that I doubt that God is going to reach that loved one of mine that is not walking with God. There's times that I doubt, well, fill in the blank. I can tell you about all my doubts. What about yours? Is God strong enough? Here's a couple things to do to strengthen your faith. Number one, study the promises of God. There's a great website, 365promises.com. You can go there and get a promise every single day from God. 
I would encourage you to look at that because when we understand the promises of God, just like in Hebrews, we're going to see that God will start to do something and stir in our hearts. And when he stirs in our hearts, that's the second thing, allow God to do that with his promises. And then when you do that, then you're going to take a step of faith as you obey him. And then God in his time can commend you for the work. But right now, what we need to do is trust in the strength of God. The final song is Your Love is Strong. I love this because it's Matthew 6 in, in song form. And so what we're going to do is just give this song up to God, say, okay, God, I'm trusting you. You are strong, and I am putting my faith completely in you. That's the altar call that every single one of us would say, yes, this year, God, I'm going to live by faith. I'm going to live by faith and I'm going to trust the very words that you speak.